Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the Fairy Tailors Podcast. First episode of the new year, 2022. Feeling pretty good. Feels really good. I'm hopeful for 2022. I just had a really refreshing break. It was weird to not be doing any research or work uh, for a Thousand One Nights episode. <laughs> but it was like, Nice, refreshing. I started to do research into like other stuff. It was nice. I had a very refreshing time as well. Nice. We hope you all had a happy new year as well. And we're glad that you're back here with us. One thing of this year that I am genuinely very excited about is Tuesday. Not just like (laughs) this coming Tuesday, but February 2nd of 2022 falls on a Tuesday. And it has been declared that it'll be known as Tuesday. And I'm super excited for that. That is that is super exciting. So I say this is the first episode of the podcast this year, which is true. But actually, it's not the first time that you could hear our voices on a newly released podcast this year, <laughs> which is just a very convoluted and complex way of saying that we guessed it on another podcast that came out the first week of January. Yeah, I did think that was funny when the episode came out January 5th on Woke Tales podcast. And I thought it was funny that that came out this year before we'd even released like an episode for this like calendar year. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh man, we were on somebody else's podcast before we were on our podcast this year. But people should go and check it out. The podcast is called Woke Tales and you can find them on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where you listen to your podcast, I'm pretty sure. Um, so Woke Tales, and the episode is The Lay of Thrym. The story is about Thor uh, losing his hammer, Mjolnir, and he has to team up with his rascal brother, Loki, to get it back. And interesting, this story is not from uh, Marvel. This story is from the Poetic Edda. And it was really interesting. We had a really great conversation about the themes inside of the story and, you know, what what is good and bad about it thematically now in the year uh, 2022. So, it yeah, was fun. it was a lot of fun. I had a good time uh, on that podcast. It was like different kind of than how we go about things lots of the time yeah. as far as like focusing so specifically on like that part of it. Like it's called woke tales. So I think you can imagine uh, kind of the lens that they're looking at the tales through, but our personalities definitely came through uh, (laughs) as well. So if you like listening to our podcast, you'll definitely still enjoy listening to that episode. And if you've come to our podcast because you first heard us on woke tales, welcome and buckle up because our episodes on average are like three, four, five times longer (laughs) than an episode of woke tales. So Hopefully you like us a lot. (laughs) Because you're about to hear a lot of stuff. And now that it's a new year, we have a new kind of yearly project that we're going to be working on. 
That, of course, we're excited about. If we weren't excited about it, we wouldn't be doing it. Right, Katrina? Absolutely. Because we do this podcast mostly for fun. And so that'd be ridiculous if I was like, now we've decided to do a project that I feel miserable about. (laughs) (laughs) So this year, what we're going to do is we are going to pivot our attention onto uh, participation from all of you, our incredible audience. In the last couple of years, we've gotten a lot of like questions from different audience members. We've gotten uh, tales that have been suggested or requested for us to retell. And when people have messaged me questions, I've tried to like reply just to that like individual who had messaged me. But one of the things that's really amazing about being in like a classroom with other people and hearing other people asking questions is that everyone can benefit from hearing the question and then the answer to that question, because they might not have thought about it, but they would love to know the answer to that question. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I've had the experience so many times where someone asks a question that I don't know if I ever would have thought to ask, but I love to hear the answer to it. So I think that is also what I'm excited about is probably like lots of these people ask you questions and I don't even know about it unless for some reason it comes up some other way. So yeah, like, there'll be things I, like, that come up because people ask about that. I, yeah, that yeah. I would never have heard about if they hadn't. So I benefit as well. Yeah. And what's great about the, um, some of the stories that have been recommended are stories from like different parts of the world that I wouldn't have necessarily come across in a timely manner, like on my own. And so it's been interesting, like people sending me stories that they have questions about inside that story. They're like, Oh, is this, this kind of tail type or like, what do you think about like this element? You know, like, and I've benefited from like reading the story that somebody's sent to me or, you know, asked a question about or whatever, but then our audience in general isn't getting the benefit of that like dialogue from the audience until now, until now. So our project this year is that we are wanting um, questions. If you have questions that you have been wondering about, want clarification on, you can write to us on our Facebook page or on Instagram, just reach out so that we know that, you know, that, is a question that you have. If you have story suggestions, also send me information about the story. Tell me what interests you the most about the story. Maybe what you would like to know more about. Because yeah, we're excited this year for audience participation and hearing what you guys want to know more about. So we... We do have like a couple questions that, you know, over the years I've gotten asked that we're going to kind of start off the year with, you know, so that we have material. <laughs> and so we're not just <laughs> shooting the breeze for an hour this time. And, yeah, uh, while we, while we wait for. Uh, <laughs> so I have some of those like questions and we're excited. But this episode, the question that we're going to answer, it's it's a couple different questions but all kind of in the same on the same theme that not only I've been asked before but I have heard other folklorists and fairy tale experts get asked this question ah. like all the time and 
it's really interesting because normally in in the context where if I'm watching uh, like a panel of experts talking about this, it, it's such a big question topic with a lot of like contingency that they really can't answer it fully quickly. And so they'll right. usually answer part of it. So I was like, you know what? Like this is this is a good <laughs> full first episode like for us to kind of start the year off with you know who does have two full hours that they could devote <laughs> to answering this question yeah to, like just this question <laughs> i mean and it's it's an interesting question to ask to uh folklorists and folktale experts because the question also kind of falls outside of their expertise uh Ooh. which is early childhood development and Ooh. like children's literature and Ooh. so I'm I'm interested in like talking about because this. it happens to fall sort of within Katrina's area of expertise because yeah. she actually studied that in school yeah. and educated very early childhood children as they were developing. Yeah, I was a preschool teacher, um, and I was studying early childhood education, and I was a preschool teacher, and this was actually a question that got me into doing this podcast like in a roundabout way this question is for me what started off my interest in this whole topic so the question is all full circle in 2022 i'm like ramping it up and i still haven't read what the question is only about five more minutes until we'll tell you what the question (laughs) is stay tuned after these messages from our sponsors (laughs) okay so the question that we're answering today is How important is it for children to learn folk and fairy tales in their original form? I find a lot of children have heard retellings of tales, but haven't heard the original. How important do you think it is for them to learn them? And if so, are there certain ages you recommend they learn them by? And which tales are the most important for them to learn? So... Yeah, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that question, which again, like is really hard for somebody to answer in like five minutes. Okay. So again, like I said earlier, this question is deeply interesting to me because this is one of the questions that I had when I first started looking into fairy tales. I was researching different preschool curriculums because I had two very young children at the time. And one of the methods that I had learned about in college uh, when I was studying early childhood education, or there were a couple methods that kind of were lightly gone over in the coursework because they aren't kind of the the typical. If you're going to teach in some of those different methods, they they have special certificates that you have to get to qualify as that kind of like a teacher anyway. Right. But I had been interested when I was learning about them in college they had intrigued me. And so when I had two very young children of my own at the time, I wanted to look into those methods of schooling because I some of the what they teach like resonates with me. And one of the methods that I was researching has a really heavy emphasis on fairy tales, especially the Grimm's brothers. One of the methods of teaching that I was looking into is the Waldorf Steiner. And there's a heavy emphasis on the brothers Grimm and fairy tales because the like founders of those schools were German and they were like, Oh, these are really good stories that both, you know, 
promote like cultural identity and they felt like there was good value in those stories for children. So I was I was interested in that method of teaching my kids there's a lot of other things that go into uh, Waldorf school besides just like right. They're not just like, all right, sit down, kids. We're going to read the Grimm's Brothers to yeah. you. Um, but it is like actually part of the curriculum, which is interesting because I don't know. It's like it doesn't seem necessarily obvious to me, although maybe it should just because there are some like nursery rhymes. And like if I think of like my kids preschool yeah. curriculum that they send home, like they're like, oh, this week we're learning like this nursery rhyme. Yeah. And there's there's also like there are um, schools methods that are like American based that are either like heavily Christian that, you know, go from like they get their readings from the Bible or classic stories about like the founding fathers. So like, yeah, so this this type of teaching isn't like it's not like wild and out there. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like it's freakish or anything i was really interested in it because of the the child led the home environment like it, it's like i want to say like it's just like very like earthy <laughs> uh <laughs> type of uh education that i i i resonate with like it it intrigues me and i like it but in in the story of the origins of our podcast um i was Looking into this curriculum, I decided to grab a copy of the Brothers Grimm collection of, you know, German folk tales. And I started to read the tales and I quickly discovered (laughs) that these tales are um, a lot different than kind of how I was presented them, like when I was a kid growing Mm -hmm. up. And a lot of the stories are ones that, like, I had never heard before. And some of them are, like, a hot mess. And not all of these are meant for children. And when I started to research these tales, I realized that, like, no, I was correct that these tales were not all meant for children. In the 1800s, when the Grimm's brothers were marketing their book towards children, there was actually major pushback at the time because of, like, some of the stories were violent, uh, too sexual in nature, and... Almost immediately, they started making edits to those stories that removed some of the violence, some of the sexuality, added in God, because at the time, people thought, hey, if you're marketing books for children, then you need to have some kind of like religious component to it. So yeah, when I started to read The Brothers Grimm, and I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know if all these stories are okay for children. When I started to do research into the tales and why they're why some of them seem weird or why the morals are how they are i mean that basically gave birth to like this podcast it set you on the path to wanting to learn about it yeah and then you're like hey maybe it it, i'm not as excited about this for my kids as i was going into it but i just want to learn more how come i didn't know these things before yeah so going back to kind of like the question at hand is you know the how important is it for children to learn folk and fairy tales in their original form so that first of all takes us back to the conversation about like original original usually what people are asking is like oh hey i've heard online that the version of rapunzel that i'm the most familiar with isn't the original version and that the original version 
is a lot more violent and disgusting. Is it important that I read my children the original version? (laughs) (laughs) And when really what's going on is folk tales and fairy tales, they don't have original versions because uh, folk tales were at the beginning oral stories they were being told out loud and they took whatever form the storyteller wanted which meant that a storyteller could change the story to suit their audience whether their audience was young children or the ladies that they were doing their spinning work with and we're just hanging out versus guys hanging out at a bar like yeah they could change the story to suit who was in front of them and so it's not important for children to learn original versions because there are not original versions is it important for children to learn folk and fairy tales i think so it goes into part of just like national cultural identity stories yeah especially like stories like told to a group very very important the word original is a like oh oh nope we don't say that here (laughs) so unless you're talking about literary fairy tales like the little mermaid where literary fairy tales are stories that still have that fairy tale form to them and characters and such but they were written by one author. So like The Little Mermaid was originally written by Hans Christian Andersen based off of other folk and fairy tales that he had heard in his life that he used as inspiration to write The Little Mermaid. But The Little Mermaid itself is a literary fairy tale, and that does have an original form. I I think some of the confusion too comes from the fact that the way that we are exposed to them more often than not in the time that we live is in some sort of fixed form. It's not like our grandma telling us a story. We're watching a Disney movie. And to us, that's the version. There is a thing that you can go back to that's the same every time. Even when your grandma tells you the story, she probably doesn't tell it the same every single time. And then even with lots of these fairy tales, that we would think of in society in general as being like the original versions. We think it's original because we're going back to like the oldest fixed form that we can find. Yeah. Like the Grimm's brothers collection, they didn't write them, but they did compile them. And there is this fixed form. There is this one true text that you can go back to. And yes, like if you want to be quote unquote true to the Grimm's brothers version that they recorded the way that they did, then that's, you know, that version, but it doesn't mean just the nature of how they got them. They collected these from other people telling them. And they even kind of had to make decisions about if they heard the story from multiple sources, which elements to include from which one. And, and they even put some of their own, you know, even, even if completely unintentionally, some of their own twist on the tale as they were doing it. And I don't know a lot about how they do. I would love to hear about, uh, uh, you made a face that made it seem like, oh, they were probably doing some stuff even intentionally. So I hope that maybe there's. Oh yeah, that was what my face was. uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm like, someday we do need to do an episode that's just on the Grimm's brothers and how they collected them because it is 100% the later and later you get into like the additions, the more and more they added their own, even style. Yeah into what they were recording 
and writing down. And so, yeah, no, 100% it is. Like they... So that's the... Yeah, they even couldn't stop themselves from putting themselves into the work. And that's the confusion that we have when you don't have that knowledge. Because like lots of us too haven't directly experienced like reading from the Grimm's Brothers collection or reading from Hans Christian Andersen's book. Like we don't know that one of those was someone that sat down and made that stuff up and wrote it out of his imagination, Hans Christian Andersen. And the other one was one that these two brothers went around and did like a collection of the stories that were popular in the area that we lived. Like we don't know that information. And to make it even more complicated, not all of Hans Christian Andersen's stories were ones that he wrote by himself. Some of his stories are retellings of popular stories that he did here which yeah yeah again like yeah like it 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 just it makes it really confusing it makes it even more confusing so uh, yeah i totally understand why people it's totally forgivable to feel that and think that but it's one of the things that we try to do on this podcast too is be like look we understand where you come from and i i've noticed as i've been editing that i lots of times actually still do say like oh like the original and i hope that as you're listening you understand what i'm saying that i'm meaning the original from the text that we are reading from. And I do know in my heart of hearts that um, that is an original with like big <laughs> quotes. Around yeah. It. Yeah. So once you take out like the word, like original from the question and kind of like we rework it a little bit so that we're not, you know, stuck on just answering that one part of being like, but there aren't originals. Like, okay, fair enough. So if we reword the question, it's more aligned with like, how important is it for children to learn folk and fairy tales from antiquity and which ones are the most important and which retellings are the best. This question to me, much more interesting to answer. And again, it starts with a question. What, what are you trying to teach your kids when you're looking for Mm. uh, folk and fairy tales from antiquity, when you're trying to figure out like, which retellings are the best, you need to answer the question for yourself. Like, what am I trying to teach my kids? Are you trying to teach them that the world is a cruel place and even parents can't be trusted to act in nurturing ways? If that is what you would like to teach your children, I have a list. (laughs) That will be added as a PDF in the show notes of this episode so that you can traumatize your children. Because that is like when you look at some of the stories that were written in the 1700s, the 1800s, whatever, when you look at them, some of like the lessons that they are teaching, even if they are teaching like children need to be well behaved or, you know, whatever it is, what you also might be teaching them is like the world is a cruel place and you can't even trust your parents to act kindly or nurturing to you. Or other problematic, like, messaging. So I'm drawing from my background as, like, a preschool teacher here. But the the main thing to focus on is what do I want my child to learn from a story? Stories and playing pretend are two ways that kids get to hear about situations that they haven't encountered yet or emotions that they haven't explored or talked about. So it's like, why does almost every preschool classroom seem to have like a circle time reading mat or reading area and a pretend play corner? 
It's because those areas are where some of the most major learning happens in a early childhood environment. When you are sitting down for a circle time reading with little kids, what is happening in that story makes it able for you to start conversations with these kids. It's helping them explore situations that they might not have encountered yet and talk about the emotions that the characters are feeling, the problem solving that goes on. So uh, stories are vitally important for children. And I am a major believer that people should constantly be like reading to their children and that they should know kind of what they want to get out of that material that they're engaging with their children in. Uh, Something that really bothers me when people talk about, oh, we don't tell like these original versions anymore is people will say, oh, because the kids today are are weak and they like scare really easily. They can't like handle it. They're not as tough as like people back in the day. And I don't think that's true at all. I see kids today who are tackling like death. Death happens you know, still today, I mean, I understand people are like, oh, they were a lot more face to face with death, like back in those days. And that's true because you were more likely to die before you were five. And so you would likely see a parent die or a sibling die. But death is still something that happens today. And like divorce, racism, domestic violence, like there are a lot of major heavy topics that kids do need to be exposed to. And there's our books that deal with those topics in a straightforward manner that it, it's yeah. not, you're not disguising the problem as a dragon. You're saying like, no, this is what bullying looks like. Have you ever acted this right. way? Has anyone ever acted this way to you? Here's what you should do about that. So I don't, I don't think that children today are too weak to handle the stories in the Grimm's brothers. Right. I think that some of the lessons in the stories aren't what I want to be teaching my child for today. (laughs) Right. Because times are different. Going back to something that you said that I thought was really interesting about how kids respond to stories and why, as far as like a way for them to encounter situations and emotions that they haven't experienced before. That's something I've noticed with my children. And actually my wife has really noticed and implemented it in trying to teach our kids something, tell them like, hey, this is why we don't behave this way or this is why we do want to behave this way. When you say it to them like that, they do not care. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they'll repeat it back to you and they'll say, fine, whatever. So what my wife has started doing is she will like a few minutes after whatever event has happened, she'll be like, hey, can I tell you a story? And she tells a story that is a very thinly veiled <laughs> version yeah. of the situation that just happened, or she will make it more like different enough. So that's like, but even when it's only thinly veiled, like they can't necessarily tell. And it's like, they remember that much better and they're much more willing to listen. And they, whether they learn the lesson and act that way or not, I don't know, but you can tell at least that it's getting through to them even more. And one thing that I think is fascinating, tying it back to something that I was just reading from this book called, I always get the title wrong because it's kind of like a weird, uh, not a play on words, 
but I'm going to look it up okay. so I don't get it wrong. So the book is called Predictably Irrational. And so like, I always want to like, I, I don't know if it's irrationally predictable or predict, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like whatever, what combination, but predictably irrational. And in it, um, the author is talking about how as human beings, and this is done, he is a professor at like MIT and he, he's in, he's a, into like say psychology and like behavioral psychology. And he was talking about like the situation, how two people can experience the same events, but interpret them so differently. And the example that he chooses to give in that is like a sports example, like two people who are fans of two separate teams watch the same play happen. But both of those people who saw the exact same things will so strongly believe that their team was in the right, the other team was in the wrong. And how it's just one of these biases that are just so wedged and ingrained in our brain. And like we all behave yeah. that way in so many ways that we don't even realize. And I think taking it back to what we're talking about, that can also be one of the things in the situations with my children and also the situations for other children with other yeah. stories is that's a way that you can present the information and present oftentimes their own actions in a way that they are outside of it. Their bias is removed because it's not them that's doing it. Obviously, they understand their inner feelings that made them do this yeah. thing that was wrong. Yeah. But when they see it from the outside, someone else doing it, that's not them. They can then see, oh yeah, now I can, I'm far enough removed from it that I can see why that was wrong. And that's the same way that in that example, that that's how we overcome that bias yeah. in ourselves is when you're in a situation like that, either a third party or yourself, it's like, let's just present the information to you devoid of any labels or context so that you don't immediately attach your yeah. biases onto them. And I feel like that's what's happening when we tell children stories. Yes. We get us not only expose them to situations they're not part of, but ones that they have been a part of in a way that they're detached from them so that they can see it with a perspective that we want them to see yeah, it in. Yeah, because like you've met, you've met my daughter. She's a very feisty person. And sometimes she, <laughs> yes. and she's gotten a lot better, like as she's gotten older. But like when she, you know, was like four years old, she she feels feelings very, very large. And she gets completely like overwhelmed by that feeling. And like, even if the feeling is hunger, one of the, she was one of, she used to be one of the hangriest people I'd ever met, like in my life. Where like, if she was feeling <laughs> hungry, she would, you know, start to, you know, get way irrational and outside of herself. And it was really hard to like, in that moment, get her to realize what feeling it was like welling up inside of her. And then it was like, no, honey, you are hungry and you need a sandwich. You don't hate your uncle. Like we like, <laughs> you just think you hate your uncle because he is what's standing between like you and lunch right now. But like your, your feelings are misplaced. But I mean, she, one, she's four years old, so I don't expect her to like be a fully actualized human being. I'm not even, so it's fine. Right. <laughs> but a lot of like what we would do with when we were talking with her, like we would be not in that moment, but at other times talking about feelings, reading her stories about people who start to feel a really big feeling and get angry and throw things. And we're like, huh, let's see what this kid does in this story to calm down. And then after you know, like she started to get it and realize, oh, sometimes when I'm feeling my big feelings, you know, I have the power in me to do what I saw as an example in this story or whatever. 
And yeah, when I'm reading her the story, she doesn't feel called out. Like, I feel like kind of what you were saying about like stories is like, because yeah. it's just, oh, you're watching somebody else like go through that and she's able to be like, oh, okay. So yeah, storytelling is extremely important. I definitely think children should always be, you know, getting carefully selected um, books and stories. Obviously, not every book has to, you know, have like a purpose for, you know, foisting a lesson onto like a child. But like, books are such an amazing tool. I mean, I just got the book. Uh, we did an episode of Death in a Nut in our podcast. And that story there's also a children's book that was written based on that. And it took me forever to find a copy of it. But I mean, if people heard that episode of death in a nut, they might not have necessarily thought this story is for children, but that story can be right. for children, especially like that in the story, <laughs> death in a nut, there's a person who's dealing with understanding that death is a part of life. And that book there, I can see a lot of reasons why a, a parent would want to pick up that story and read it to their kid. Maybe not everybody is like, oh, this is a must read book. Every parent should own this book. This story is vitally important for every child because maybe it's not. But like there are people who, you know, they're trying to help their kid understand why their dog died or why grandma's dying or why their little sister died like and it helps to have stories yeah. that do that and so would i say oh yeah death in a nut that's a children's story not necessarily but it could be for some kids and yeah. that story is definitely a story that like is for me like i <laughs> i'm an adult and that story is like just really meaningful to me yeah and so it it really is not about like, oh, children just can't handle things anymore. And that's why, you know, they aren't getting the oldest or most graphic versions of the stories <laughs> being told to them. So I think like an answer to the question, it the answer is mostly stories are very, very important. You have to ask yourself, does this story teach a value that is important to my child? Right. But we've talked in, this, in the past about the good daughter, bad daughter tale type, where these stories were used to provide examples of like what a good daughter does and what a bad daughter like looks like and acts like. But even with we, even within that tale uh. type, you have a variety of examples of like what good behavior is. And that's because it's based on the culture that created the tales and what they considered at the time when they made it to be good behavior. So you have like Frau Holly, who highly values like hard work and a clean house. But then you have Father Frost or Grandfather Frost, who wants to see children who don't complain about the biting cold, no matter like how much it hurts them. <laughs> and and yeah. so it really is about like looking at the story and saying, does this story teach what I want it to teach? If my child got a lesson from this story, is it a good one? <laughs> and so for fun for this episode, the stories that we're going to be telling, because we do tell stories on this podcast, not just me telling lectures for like 30 minutes. 
That's a lie. This is a me ranting for 30 minutes podcast. 30 minutes, you wish. <laughs> so for this episode, I looked up a list of stories in the Grimm's Brothers collection that are ones that might be taught in the one curriculum that I was looking at. And because not not all of the stories are on there. I will say that there's one story that we haven't talked a whole lot about on this podcast. Maybe not at all. Maybe we'll do an episode about it someday. Mm-hmm. But it's it's usually considered one of the darkest of the Grimm's Brothers tales. And it's the Juniper Tree. And no list of stories did I see the Juniper Tree on there as like a story that's a must read for children. <laughs> So I don't want to make it sound like, oh, in this curriculum, they want you to read all kinds of nasty stuff to your kids. Like, that's not that's not the point of this episode. Um, but I looked up a list. And so I grabbed two of the stories that we are going to be retelling today. And Jeff is going to be telling us the three snake leaves. Right. The three snake leaves starts off very depressing. <laughs> Just a warning. That's a great way to start. I don't know if I'll include that. (laughs) There once was a poor man who could no longer support his only son. Befallen some bad economic times. I don't know. A little too relatable. (laughs) Sorry. so dark. So the son was like, hey, dad, he's not like six years old. Becomes very apparent pretty soon. But like when you first start reading it, you're like, I don't know how old this kid, he seems pretty mature for whatever age he is. Cause he's like, Hey, I don't want things to be bad for us. I don't want to be a burden for you anymore. I would prefer it. Like if I could go out on my own and just take care of myself so that you don't have to worry about taking care of me and yourself. And so the kid says that to the dad, that's like, okay, yes, you know, you have my blessing. You can go. And they were super sad, but thinking that it was the best shot that they both had, they separated And at the time that this was going on, the king of this area was at war. They were like fighting. And so this young man was like, hey, I'm going to go join the army. That's a way that I can make sure that I'm taken care of. And so he joins the army. They start fighting. They get into this huge battle. And the battle is not going well for the side that this young man has joined. And he's watching like his comrades falling left and right. and his team his army is like they're they're getting ready they're starting to just retreat they're like we're done this is we're, we've lost but this young man is like no like we're not going to do that we're not going to let our fatherland be ruined and so he like starts rallying some troops around him and he leads a charge and they go through and they actually against the odds conquer the enemy And so the king heard about this and he heard that this young man was the one that kind of was the singular person that turned the tide of the battle for his army felt like, oh man, like I need to reward this guy. So he gave him treasures and he pretty much made him like the top dog in the kingdom. You know, he's like, you're the the bomb. I declare it such. I I just, I hope that that was just, you know, like a decree went out by By royal decree. The bomb. You are the goat. And Katrina, as it always happens, the king had a daughter who was beautiful, the most beautiful, but she was also (laughs) strange. I relate hard. (laughs) 
And the thing that was strange about her, which I would love for someone to like psychoanalyze this <laughs> woman and tell us like what it is that's happening. But she had made a vow that she wasn't going to marry anyone unless that person promised that when she died, they'd be buried alive with her. She had read Romeo and Juliet like one too many times in high school. <laughs> Which in a time when women would die often in childbirth, to make that promise to like a woman... That's a little terrifying. Like, that's quite a gamble. Like, I'm just saying. That's true. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, of all the, just in the fairy tales that we've discussed, like, how many times were there like, oh, like his wife died and then his other wife died and then his other wife died? Very seldom. Yeah, I mean, like, this this guy was like in the military. So there's that chance that like he would die first before his wife. But also, like, in a day and age when women would die of childbirth and she's saying, like, nope. If I die, I don't want my husband to keep living because how could he keep living yeah. if, you know, the love of his life died? I want him to love me so much that exactly. if I died, he would die. She wanted a note. She wanted a notebook situation. But like at the end of the movie, the notebook, uh, <laughs> they both die at the same time. I thought that was confusing. Um, yeah, like ho- yeah. like holding hands in bed, Except like, that she- <laughs> so in love. That's how my wife and I have oh, talked about. I how would we're love to die. do that, you know, in my nineties or whatever. But not yeah. not if I'm if I'm thirty. Yeah, being if buried I'm in my alive. 30s or if my husband, you know, <laughs> is in like his thirties or forties. Like, no, I don't want to die with him. I still have a lot of life left to live. I love him so much, but yeah. if he dies, like I'm just gonna keep going. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you obviously don't <laughs> love your husband as much as this woman demands because like literally we've we've said it and it kind of sounds like a joke, but her actual rationale that is stated in the story is that she wants someone that will love her so much that if she died that his life is over. Like there's no life left for him to live because he loves her so much that that it's just done. And so we know how this is going to go. <laughs> We've we've been around the block a couple of times, all right? <laughs> the young man was not deterred by this. Hearing the story, he was kind of like, it seems almost like that made it even more like desirable for him. The fact that no one else like had the guts to do it. <laughs> I, that's my theory. You know what I mean? Because like he was the guy that like the battles like decidedly over. We're going to yeah. die if we stay and fight. He's the guy that's like, no, we fight and like defies yeah. the odds. He's kind of like the same thing in this situation. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to defy the odds. Like, no one else wants to do this. He's like, no, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to die. I'll marry this woman. (laughs) That's a way to go into a marriage. I'm not afraid to die. I'll marry you. (laughs) (laughs) He goes to the father and he's like, hey, I know you think I'm the bomb. I've got this nice, cool piece of paper that one of your scribes drew up that says so. Um, I would like to marry your daughter. I am ride or die and the king for your is, daughter. Yeah. And the king is like, look, man, you know I love you. You know I think you're the bomb. But, like, do you understand, like, the conditions that you're agreeing to here? Like, she's strange, and she wants the person that she marries to be buried with her. She dies first. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand the consequences. But my love for her is so great that I'm willing to risk the danger. Again, my interpretation, I don't think that his love was so great that he was willing to risk the danger. I just think that his like risk avoidance was so low <laughs> that that was possible. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that statement is true, but like 
if you look at it in the big picture and more objectively, like his love wasn't so great. It was just the threshold of risk that he had to overcome was so low. Anyway, enough of my yeah. commentary. Oh, no. It's good. They get married. They celebrate. Everyone is excited. And they live for a while happily. For a while. But suddenly, and this is where things get a little confusing, they start calling this the king's daughter the young queen and her husband the young king. So there's kind of like two yeah. kings. There's the old king, her father, and the young king, our main yeah. character. The young queen comes down with a really bad illness. A really bad case of the deaths. And no doctors can save her. <laughs> and she dies. And so as she's laying there dying, her husband, our main character, the guy who's the bomb by royal decree, the young king, remembered the promise that he made and he was horrified about the thought of having to lie down alive in the grave with his wife. But he also realized, like, there was no way out. The old king, the father king, had put guards around all the gates. There was no way that he would get out of there without being captured and forced into following through yeah. on his promise. And part of me is kind of like... No, yeah, yeah, for like, like, why couldn't you just be like, <laughs> hey, guy, listen, like, you know the deal, like... She's dead. She's not actually going to know. Like, Yeah, I'm not going to hold you to that promise. Like, yeah, because I'm like, this promise kind of makes it so that, like, somebody else has to be responsible for enforcing it. Yeah. Which is, like, And essentially murdering Because it's like, yeah, exactly. Because I'm like, dude, she's dead. And it goes against the whole spirit of the thing. She's (laughs) not... Yeah, she's not going to know. The whole spirit of it was that they loved him so much that they would <laughs> gladly do it. Well, that's hypothesis has proven to be false, which further yeah, solidifies my hypothesis it. that it was not his love, but his low <laughs> risk tolerance that let him do it. Yes. Anyway. Let's get this man buried. Let's get this man buried. <laughs> exactly. So the day comes that the corpse is going to be buried and this guy's taken down with it into the royal vault and the door shut behind him. Very relieved am I at this point in the story that it's not like taking a shovel and digging six feet under and making it in there and like throwing dirt on top of him. They like take him into a nice, so he's like locked in a room, slightly better than being literally buried alive with dirt. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, what I'm picturing is 100% like Romeo and Juliet, like in a catacombs type yeah. of situation. That's what I'm picturing, which I'm like, he could have really gone for a vial of poison, like at this point. You know what I mean? Just like end the suffering instead of them being like, oh, good luck, bye. Yeah. And here's another thing that was interesting. So near the coffin on a table, there were some candles, four candles, four loaves of bread, and four bottles of wine, which I thought was interesting that there was a specific number, and that specific number was four of each item. Slightly infuriated that there were only three items that there were four of and not four items that there were four of, but that's probably just me. (laughs) But the thing that's interesting is they were provisions that he would not... Die quickly. Die quickly, yeah. It's like, no, we want you to stay in this catacombs alone, locked in here for a little while before you start dying. Is it a kindness? Is it a is it further torture because they knew that he didn't really want to fall through? Yeah. I don't know, but it's like whether you thought you were doing this man a kindness or not, like it it probably wasn't. Um and so this yeah. man, the young king, he starts rationing the bread and wine to last as long as possible. 
And one day, <laughs> while he's in this catacomb staring at the wall, because there's not much to do down there, he sees a snake slither out of this hole, start coming towards the corpse of his wife. And he's thinking like, oh, this snake is going to start like to eat my wife's body. I'm not going to have any of that. So he draws his sword and he says to the snake, as long as I live, you shall not touch her. And he like chopped the snake in three pieces. So it was like he still loved her enough to not want her corpse to be eaten by animals. So it. Or he didn't <laughs> want to share in case he got hungry. That's getting there. cut. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting cut. Uh, So it places his love for her somewhere along that spectrum. In love with her enough to not want her corpse to be eaten by animals, but not in love with her enough to be buried alive with her. Which, honestly, I think that's like the spectrum that all of us lie on with our spouses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, correct. It's true for me. Yeah. I don't want to be it. No, it's true. I I love my husband. I don't want to like watch his body be like eaten by wild animals. But yeah, I don't want to be mar- buried alive with him either. So, so after this guy chops a snake into three pieces, another snake comes out, and when that snake sees the first snake lying dead, it's like, uh oh, slithers back up into the hole. But then soon comes back with three leaves in its mouth. And then it took the three pieces of the snake. So this second snake takes the pieces of the first snake, pushes them back together as if it were one full snake that had not been chopped into pieces. And then takes takes one of each of these three leaves and puts it on the three cuts. And then immediately those parts are joined together. The snake you did. You just did. You just did the math in your head too, right? If there are three cuts, because like it says, it cut cuts. him into three pieces. So there are two cuts. Yeah, but he put he yeah, put them on the three pieces of the snake, not the three, three cuts. <coughs> well, I don't know, because that's how I read yeah. it too. That he cut no, it into three pieces. No, you're absolutely pieces, right. And then he put it the says three exactly. Yeah. No, it, the I math know. doesn't it's just, work. You like the way that you paused. I was like, yeah. I know I did the math too, because the snake would have been if it had been cut three times, it would have been in four pieces. Now I'm trying to go back, but it, yeah, okay. it doesn't. It, no, 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 no. Yes. Like the no, one, you're the one like, sentence is very clear that that's wrong. But I was trying to see what it said. So it says he hewed the snake in three pieces. So it says he's in three pieces at first, which means two cuts. But then it very specifically says. Yeah. He placed a leaf on each wound, which there would only be two, but there are three leaves that he put one on each wound. It's just, it was like one of those things just when I was imagining it, like, oh, the snake was cut into three pieces. So I'm imagining the three pieces. And then when it said they brought in the three leaves and put them on the wounds, I was like. Yeah, that's exactly wait. what happened in my brain. I couldn't. And then I, I thought I had read it. it wrong. I couldn't. And then it went it. back. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Somehow it works. Yeah. All right. <laughs> And that's beside the point. Doesn't it's matter. The, the thing point. that's important yeah. is the snake, the wounds heal together. The snake returns to life and they both slither off together. But the snakes left these leaves behind. And so this man's like, I don't want to be in here with a dead body anymore. This is worth a shot. He picks up the three leaves and puts <laughs> one over her mouth and one over each eye. And like that 
The blood comes back into her face. She comes back to life. She sits up and she is living and breathing again. A little bit freaked out. She's like, where am I? And he's like, oh, don't worry, dear wife. You're with me. We're in a crypt, but it's okay. And he gives her some of the wine and bread that he'd (laughs) saved. And when she'd kind of like regained her strength, they went up and they knocked at the door. And he's like, hey, listen, she didn't die. The whole thing is fine. You can let us out. And they're like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And they're so excited. They're so happy. Everyone starts hugging each other. The, the sorrow and sadness is over. The young king is like, all of these people would be willing to lock me in here in that situation. Like, that's got to be <laughs> in the back of his mind. Not, not. Yeah. <laughs> but also, conversely, you would think that the woman would have seen not only did this man like bring me back to life, like saved me. But also, she knows for sure, for 100%, that's true. that he followed through with it and was buried with her. But I was going to say, on to the rest which the makes for an interesting rest of the story <laughs> if you interpret it that way. So the young king has now seen these magic leaves work twice. He's not going to leave them down there. He takes them, gives them to a servant. He says, hey, keep these leaves on you at all times so that I can have them in case we ever need them. And so they go on with living their lives. But something had changed in the wife in between her being dead and coming back to life, which is very common in horror movies when people die and come back to life. Uh-huh. It's the uh, the, the monkey paw effect. I... Is that what it's called? No. Oh. But that's... Uh, well, cause like usually when people say the monkey pots, it's when you make a wish, but it doesn't turn out like the right. same way that you want it yeah, to. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in the story, the monkey paw, they like wish that their son would come back to life. And then he like does. And yeah, I mean, it, the monkey's paw is a short story by W.W. W. Jacobs. It's a horror story if people want to know, but yeah, the, their son like comes back to life, but he's like not quite. He's not himself. Yeah. And this lady is mostly herself, except for she's no longer in love with her husband, (laughs) who just proved that he would follow through on being buried alive with her, which is why it's like, oh, man. Like, she has some solid proof that he loved her that much. Anyway, uh, the young king decided he wanted to go on a voyage over the sea to visit his dad. Now that his fortunes had changed, he's like, hey, maybe I can probably take care of my dad. Like, I haven't seen this guy in forever. I hope he's doing okay. Let's go visit him. So the young queen joins the young king. They get on the ship and they set sail. So this woman is on this voyage with her husband, who she no longer loves, has no sense of, like, fidelity towards him. Even though he was willing to be buried alive with her. And even though yeah. he brought her back from death. You know what? Like sometimes death or like a, a near brush with death makes us like re-examine our priorities in yeah. life. And it seems like she decided that it, her priorities were she, you know, wasn't that into her husband. Which anymore. is actually, that is a good point. And I have seen that happen in real life where like, you know, a brush with death makes someone rethink what's actually important in their life. And And to be fair, her one qualification in a husband was that they'd be willing to be buried alive with her, which is kind of a weird thing. Like she kind of went along with whoever met that qualification. There was nothing about him that she was like, oh, he's the one I want to marry. The only thing for him was he's willing to be buried with me because he loves me so much. So I guess it makes sense. I'll cut her a little slack, but only a little. Um, But while they're on this voyage... (laughs) 
<laughs> no, we're not le really legitimately going to cut her any slack. Okay. For what she's about. Okay, to do. we're not cutting her any slack. That's true. <laughs> she gets no slack, but she does get a little bit of underst. I understand. I don't agree with the choices that you made subsequently to this, but I understand. That's the point I'm getting. I'm making. That's the slack. The emotional slack. <laughs> no slack. Anyway, all this to say, they're on the boat, and she thinks that the skipper's really hot, so she wants to get with the skipper, all right? <laughs> Which, no. Hey, you only live once. <laughs> no slack. Unless you're this lady. <laughs> then you live twice. <laughs> <laughs> but no slack given, but she gets the hots for the skipper. And to make that even... I feel the same <laughs> way when I'm watching uh, Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and like we all do when we're watching Gilligan's Island. <laughs> she got the hots for the skipper. But to make things all the more worse is that she decides that because she's got the hots for the skipper, that she's going to kill her husband. So while he's asleep, she gets the skipper to help her out, which I'm like, what is the ellipses in this story that the skipper is willing to help her with this deed? Fill it in with your own imagination. Oh, I will. So she calls in the skipper. They pick the young king up while he is sleeping and throw him into the sea to drown. And then the young queen's like, all right, let's go home and just say that he died on the way. And I'll say that you rescued me and he'll think that you're great and he'll let you marry me and then he'll make you the heir to the crown. It's like, okay, lady. <laughs> but there's another character that's been introduced in this story, which is the young king's faithful servant who saw all of this go down and they didn't know that he saw it. So he got off the boat on a little lifeboat and went after his master, let those murderers go their own way. And he fishes the body out of the sea, which is like, dang, man, like finding <laughs> that thing must have been quite the task, but he does it. Fishes his master out of the sea, puts the leaves on one on his mouth, one on each eye, and the young king comes back to life. And so both of these guys, the servant and the young king, they rode with, it sounds weird to say that, rode as in rode the boat. Rode, rode, rode the boat. So these two men, they started rowing the boat with all their strength day and night and they were rowing so hard so fast without ceasing that they got to the old king before the young queen and the skipper were able to get back and when they showed up without the young queen the king was like surprised and like okay what's going on and they tell the story about what happened the servant tells them like about hey your daughter murdered this guy but it's cool because i brought him back but also it's not cool because your daughter's a murderer <laughs> the king couldn't believe it and I think the king is on our side of thinking like, look, man, like you went down to be buried alive with her. You brought her back to dead and she treats you this way. I don't care that yeah. she's my daughter. Like I'm on your side. And so the king's like, don't worry about it. I've got a really cool plan how we could totally prank her when she gets back. So let's go forward with this. <laughs> so the, the young queen comes back with a ship. She comes in before her father and the, and the father, the old king is asking like, Oh, why are you alone? Where's your husband? And so she, yeah, what happened to that guy? And she goes on this whole story like, oh no, like I'm so sad. He died along the way. And if the skipper hadn't helped me, like I would have died and everything would have been horrible. And like, you got to make him the heir to the throne and everything like that because I'm just so poor and innocent. 
And the king was like, oh, I can tell that you're really, really sad about the fact that your husband has died. Don't worry. I will make the dead live again. And when he says that, the young king <laughs> boom, bursts in the door with Ashton Kutcher. You just got punked. And <laughs> so the young queen obviously like realizes that her father knows what's up. She gets to her knees and starts begging for mercy. And the king says, no, there is no mercy. He was ready to die for you. He brought you back to life and you killed him in his sleep. So you're going to get the reward that you deserve. So she was placed with the skipper, her accomplice, on a boat which had been pierced with holes and sent out to sea, where they soon sank amid the waves. The end. And good night, children. Okay, so this story, what do you think of it in terms of like uh, children's children's story? Okay, wait, one second. First, we're not going to belabor this like too terribly long, but I did find it very interesting the being buried alive with a spouse because we saw that happen in the Sinbad episode of The Thousand and Nights. And we had talked about in a different episode how... The Thousand One Nights came out before uh, the Grimm's Brothers collection and were circulating in Europe for about 100 years mm. before the Grimm's Brothers wrote down their stories. Interesting. Um, so I did think that that, yeah, is, is interesting that this is not the first time that we've seen somebody get buried alive with a spouse before and then, like, make it out. More odd is that this is not the first time we've seen magic leaves used by an animal then get used by, like, the protagonist of the story. That happened in Chu Choi the Moon Boy, which is a story from uh, Vietnam. Yeah. The banyan leaves. Yes. uh, That was more interesting to me of, like, as, as like, a a motif. I want to like learn more about like that motif and see where else it yeah. pops up in other stories to see if there is a connection or if if it's one of those things that like it's just a coincidence that yeah like two different authors spontaneously you know thought of this like element or storytellers spontaneously thought of that element to a story in separate parts yeah. of the world and I, I so I don't. I know. thought of something. I mean, I have an initial gut check kind of reaction. I do think it is interesting, like the specificity of like the animals using it first, and then the human being like learning yeah. from the animals, like that I can do this. But it does make some sort of like logical sense as far as plants having like medicinal properties that then you could use yeah. to help people who are sick. That makes sense. And then I think also. The way that it ties back into animals is just like, in my mind, reaffirming the fact that like we get this from nature. Like nature has provided us with this that we can use to help. Like having it come from an animal that shows you how to do it like is more natural than like some, you know, old woman in the woods giving you these magic leaves or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like we can see how like we do know that. Yeah, like we we understand that stories can pass on elements from other places and share stuff and so stuff like that can travel, but then there's also that uh, the um idea of uh, a spontaneous yeah. 
like because because those ideas are fairly consistent across cultures that it it makes sense that they could kind of like form i could see that one going either way though it is interesting i like the arabian nights one because of it does seem likely that i don't know to me just based on that that it was inspired by that like that seems like that would be yeah that, you know, that seems like more likely to be inspired by it. And even even the the Brothers Grimm, when they were writing about the, like, mythology in the area, when, when they were working on this, like, other projects, not this the story collection, when they were working on other collections, they acknowledged that the Thousand and One Nights, the Arabian Nights stories had influenced ah. different stories that they had in their collection. And so even that's not like us saying like, Oh, there might be that connection. Like the brothers Grimm themselves had acknowledged that they thought that that was what had happened. Interesting. Nice. So if anybody wants to go back and listen to in that, we talked about that episode or we talked about that concept in our Alibaba and the 40 thieves episode. And then Simbad story is in the Simbad episode. And then Chuchoy the moon boy is the Chuchoy the Moon Boy episode. <laughs> We're all good episodes. They are. Like above averagely good. As uh, well. Yeah. And so I do want to acknowledge if anybody who's, you know, heard all of those episodes before and was thinking to themselves as they were listening to the story, like, wait, doesn't this sound like a story I've heard before? Yes, it does. <laughs> but we don't want to like belabor that point too much because we want to kind of go to the... The point of like, this episode. Let's stop living in the past. The point it's of this 2022 episode, yeah. now. Let's live in 2022 (laughs) to the point of this episode about reading this story or telling the story to children. um, (laughs) I accidentally did read this story to a child, specifically my child (laughs) forgetting about what the theme of the episode was and what the point of this story was, because long story short, like I was putting my son to bed. I had not yet read the story in preparation for this episode. So I was like, oh, I can kill two birds with one stone here. Let me just read this to my son who likes to be read stories and told stories. And I was reading this and I was getting into it and I was like, ooh, some of this stuff, I don't know like how much I really do want to tell. My son is six years old. But he didn't actually seem too bothered by it. Um, he was he no. was a little bit too confused by some of the way that I was like by some of the way that it was worded because I read it to him like word for word um, from the thing. So the only thing I did end up changing was the ending. I didn't say that you know the king sent them off to die. I just said he sent them off and they never came back again. And even in hindsight, I'm thinking like, would I tell it to my son again? Probably not. But only because he was kind of bored. He didn't really like the story. My son happens yeah. to be one that he is into creepy things. He likes scary, creepy stuff. Yeah. So he was not bothered by like the idea of like dead bodies and skeletons and things like that. Um, or like che- cheating, like wives killing their husbands. Yeah. Or... Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But, um, uh... Well, because I was even just thinking like just now, um, I mean, we made it explicit in our retelling that the wife was going to cheat on her husband with right. the skipper. We made that explicit. But in the story, word for word, it, it happens in like a second where they just say like she started 
having like what was it like evil? Yeah, she had like a, a wicked towards inclination the towards the skipper. A wicked inclination towards the skipper. Your son, who is six years old, does not right. know what that means. And to be honest, I kind of missed that so, the first time I was reading yeah. through it too myself. So yeah, and so because like one of the things that gets talked about when people are discussing like using stories like this in the curriculum is that they say there's a lot of stuff that 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 is the bad stuff that might go over children's head. And so like that like that element of a wife cheating on her husband that 100% is going to go over your son's head. It's not going to like freeze yeah. him. The murdering the husband. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing that the no, interesting but, thing about though too like even from just his perspective and reaction to it was like the one thing that he expressed concern about was when I said that she she didn't love her husband any longer. Like that was a thing that he like he asked about it. He was oh, like, wait, yeah. she doesn't love her husband anymore? And like he was very concerned. He's like, why not? You know, like went into that. And then, you know, like yeah. and then she murders him. And then like he was very clearly on the like, well, that's not good. Like, that's not a good reason to not to kill your yeah. husband. You know what I mean? So it's like probably a little mature yeah. for him as far as like the murder and all that sort of thing. But like he did follow and react appropriately to the stuff of like Oh, like that's not good yeah. to kill your husband just because you don't love them anymore. Yeah, that is a that's good a message, message that like, I would like for my children to uh, <laughs> internalize. So if my wife ever murders me, they know that she has to have a better reason than she doesn't love me anymore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but because, like, yeah, your son who, like the the elements that are are creepy instead of like morally wrong like cheating on your yeah. spouse and murdering them but the the being buried alive that's one of those things where i'm like to me that is not the huge scary big bad thing uh -huh. in it like to tell like a, a kid because it turns out yeah. okay is it is it a little creepy to if a child is very deeply going into imagining like lying in the dark with a dead corpse. Um, but usually in a story, if things end up turning out okay, then it's not as terrifying for the yeah. kid. They're not going to dwell on like that, that moment in the story because they're going to be like, oh no, they'll remember them coming back to life and coming out. Yeah. And, and so that part is not necessarily as like scary or bad as people might be inclined to think that it like is just on the surface of it yeah and i've seen yeah that. like for like yeah being terrifying like and i've children. seen that i mean with things less scary than that with like kids yeah. who do get scared by like something in a movie like a kid's movie and they want to stop oh, watching yeah, yeah, yeah. it like usually I guess just because I intuitively know it because I experienced it or whatever. It's like, no, keep watching it because it's going to turn out okay. And if you stop watching it and you don't yes. see it turn out okay, it's going to stick with you and you're going to always think it's scary. But like once you know it turns out okay, yeah. like you're going to be fine and you'll want to watch the movie again and you won't be scared by that part ever again. And even like children's movies will like do stuff like that on purpose, you know, while they'll be showing something in the dark and, and it's eyes getting bigger and bigger. And you can see the terror on the character's face while something is coming out of the darkness. And then boom, it's just yeah. a little kitty cat. And, and there's relief after that moment, but there's that moment where a kid, you know, would feel terrified. And the, the storyteller, the 
creators of that film, they want you to be feeling that apprehension, that fear, whatever. But then when it turns out okay, immediately it's it's a relief and it's just part of that kind of like, a, you know, emotional journey, like inside yeah. of a story. And thinking um, back on it, that that and thinking is back okay. on it, the kid's never going to say like, "Oh, that was a scary part of the movie." It may have been the most scared they felt during the entire movie, but they're not going to look yeah. back and remember it that way because they remembered the whole experience. Like it, the things that yeah. I've noticed about myself and my children is it's the unresolved bad things, the unresolved scary things, are the things that stick with them and bother them and are scary to them beyond yeah. the experience of the movie. Or the story. Typically, it's a movie, but which is just interesting. Yeah. So, I kind of love that you read this story to you. It was perfect, accidentally. Child, perfect. yeah. After, I mean, especially because my point in this episode is not. No, as you can see, these <laughs> stories are terrible and should never be read to children. Like, no, that's not that that that's not the the point of like the episode. But it is looking at it and saying like. What themes was your is your child like okay with or what stuff are they not okay with? What stuff do you want your kids to know about? Because even like just now when you were talking about how he was concerned that the wife had stopped loving her husband, yeah. I have thought back to conversations that I've had like with my kids where they want to know why their aunt got divorced. Uh-huh. And explaining to a child that like, you know, yes, they had a big wedding and they lived together for years and they cared about each other, but they got divorced. And they're like, well, why? If 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 you love somebody, why would divorce happen? And then having to try to explain to young children how sometimes people can stop loving each other or they, you know, the many reasons that people get divorced. You know, that's a reality of of life is that kids are probably going to know somebody who is divorced or, or they have friends whose parents are divorced or whatever. And, you know, my kids have two parents who are married to each other and love each other and care about each other. I'm not saying like, and divorce will never happen to me. Uh, I'm just saying like currently, yeah. you know, they have parents who are in like a loving, caring relationship. And hearing that somebody else just stopped either like, oh, they don't love each other anymore or they one person started doing bad things, whether bad things means like cheating on a spouse or abuse or Or even just the fact that they like they don't live each they don't live in the same house anymore. And like imagining that as a kid being like, yeah, like, oh, like daddy or mommy wouldn't be in the same house as us. Or, you know, yeah. yeah, like that. I yeah, where it's like it is it's an important thing for kids to know, you know, that divorce can happen or people can can stop loving each other. But then they do start to wonder, is that going to happen to my parents? Yeah. And like the reality is, is that, yeah, kids are going to ask that question and there's no shielding them yeah. from that. Right. Because, like, I can't pretend that divorce doesn't exist in the world they're gonna to my children. See it. So that they're not, yeah. So, yeah. And so it's like, no, it needs to be a conversation that, yeah, sometimes people stop loving each other. If if their next question is like, will that happen to you and dad? Then I have to answer that question, yeah. right? Like, and that's tough that, like, parents have to answer questions 
that are really a lot bigger and uncomfortable than you really think a child should have yeah. to deal with. But whether you think that they're too big of a question for them to have to deal with, they still have to deal yeah. with it, right? Like, I don't want my children to have to experience the grief of death, but they're going yeah. to. Like, Is it better, to, and, like, because is that, it better to prepare them for it or is it better to have them experience it directly the first time? Yeah, yeah. And so do I think that this story is the best story for encountering like the idea of divorce with people not <laughs> no i mean and that's like the complication with like some of the stories yeah. right is that like i can see that like there is value in and and it could lead to some like really important discussions that are tough discussions to have with like children but also i i would prefer that the story didn't have a murder in it <laughs> if I was going to be, yeah. you know, so it seems like the general principles so far that I'm getting are one, it like, it's the least satisfying answer of like, it depends. And I think it's yeah. part of the thing is like you, you mentioned, is it a message that you want to be teaching your children? Because a lot of these stories have messages that are just not consistent with the values that we hold generally today. And we've talked about some of those stories like on the podcast and they're not ones that were like were necessarily meant for children or anyone was saying that you should read to children. But it's just one of those things where it's one of those things the the, at the time that the story was from, they're putting forth something as like kind of a good thing that today we'd be like, that's actually kind of a bad thing. Do we want to teach our children that this bad thing that something that we do not value and accept is is something that is acceptable and valuable like that was a really confusing way yeah, to put it. But so yeah. first, is it a, is it a message you want to teach them? And also, is yeah. it is the subject matter something that is going to be disturbing to your children? Keeping in mind kind of what we talked about as like it's not necessarily those like scary moments or like you know the things that get resolved. You know, it's like and part of that comes down to just yeah. knowing the children that you are teaching. And I think and I think another thing that we haven't really touched on yet specifically, but you did mention kind of earlier when you're telling these stories, it's your story. You're not beholden to the quote unquote original version. And which is the nice thing about it with it's like that sets you free. And I love the thing when you wrote in about, um, or a listener wrote in about a story that she had heard from her father. And it was like, Oh, but it's different from the one that you guys told in your podcast, which one is the right one? It's like, well, like the one that you, that you said your father told you, like it was a man in that culture telling you that story. That one is the correct one for you because that's how you experience. And the same thing, like we can do that for ourselves. Like You can adapt the story to fit your purposes that you want. And I like, and I like that you, um, because, I mean, one thing that does get resolved inside of this story, too, like when you were reading it to your son, is that th- the murder doesn't actually happen, right? It gets reversed. Right. I mean, yes, the woman did really murder a person, but he came back to life. And th- and and those people were punished. And I loved that you said that you changed the ending when you were reading it to your son because you didn't want to say, oh, and they... D- like sent them off in a boat full of holes so that they could drown out in the bay. Like, yeah, you, you were like, okay, 
they're going to be punished. Like they're going to be sent away because they do need to be punished. But I don't want to tell my son that they were like executed. And, and like exactly what you're saying of when you like free yourself from this like false idea of like original versions, or even that there is some original version that is somehow like superior. Yeah. You are able to then adapt the story to the audience and and know your what either your kid or the kids that you're talking to whatever like know what they need to hear and what is appropriate yeah and there's lots of interesting things that you can do either to make it more relatable to your kid or that they will just like it and listen to it more like you know switching the gender of the main character like maybe it's a a woman that is doing that from the beginning that is like has to leave her father and she goes off and fights in the war and she marries the pr- this prince who has this thing and it's like there's a version of the story where no one actually ever dies it's like they got really sick and they thought that she was dead so they put her in the tomb or you know what i mean like you can you can do all yeah, sorts yeah, of stuff yeah. or i mean i think about like one with like that does talk about like divorce or if you're trying to talk about how like they don't love, you know, people just stop loving each other. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can change things yeah. to fit. Even if the story doesn't, as you came across it, communicate what you want to, like you can kind of tweak it a little bit so that it does, which is cool. Yeah, and there's value absolutely. to that, I think. So this next story that was again included in this list of stories that, you know, have could be told in this like curriculum and um school. This story is called King Thrushbeard and I just want to point out before I start retelling it that it is ATU the uh the index tail type number 900 which Taming of the Shrew is 901. You will notice similarities uh to the Taming of the Shrew uh episode. <laughs> And so a lot of this might be very tongue in cheek, but there was once a king who had a daughter who was, of course, the most beautiful ever in the history of the world. Clearly, obviously, that's how all the princesses are. Every princess ever um, in these stories. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But this daughter was proud and haughty. No suitor was good enough for her. She thought every single person was garbage. And she would ridicule them, like, mercilessly. And they would basically go back to their kingdoms, like, super embarrassed and ashamed. So this one time the king decided to have a big feast. And he invited all the young men who were of marrying age to come and, you know, present themselves before this princess to see if she found any of them suitable to her taste. And it was more of like, welcome to your roast. (laughs) (laughs) I just like imagining this girl like up there because basically it was like every, not only would she, you know, kind of, because she wouldn't just think to herself like, oh, that guy's too tall and skinny. Like she wouldn't just think it to herself. No, no, no. She would basically, you know, she would say out loud, what was wrong with them and then compare them to like different things. So like one guy who she was like, whoa, you're way too fat. You're like a wine cask. (laughs) Like she could just be like rolled down the mountain or whatever. Like it was like, oh my gosh, lady. Um, So yeah, she's like, this guy's too tall. This one's too short. 
this I thought this was she was like short and thick is never quick. <laughs> and I was like oh my gosh like stop being so mean one guy she's she was like it says this six was not straight enough which like <laughs> Listen, I have also had that problem <laughs> with a man in my life. Uh, so, yeah, she just she was like going down the line of all these suitors and just like roasting them mercilessly. And she gets to this one guy at the end who was apparently very handsome, good tempered, nice guy, except that his chin this is interesting. It says his chin had grown crooked like the beak of a thrush. A thrush is like a little bird and they don't have crooked beaks. Hmm. I don't understand like what she's like getting at unless she's saying like his beak was or his beak. Unless she was saying his like chin was like long uh. and pointed, but that's not what she's saying. It's like but then I've heard Different versions of this story where she's just talking about like that his beard is growing weird to where it looks like a bird. I've yeah. So but whatever. She said, like, look at his chin. It looks like the thrush's beak. And everybody apparently thought that was a super funny diss and started referring to him as King Thrushbeard. The roast was so bad. Not only were people calling him King Thrushbeard, like at this dinner, uh, but then later it like left the palace, out. and yeah, it was like it was like a kingdom wide like joke. Uh huh. Of, wow. So yeah, I'm like no, yeah, I'm like it wasn't just that she was just being like, um, ew, no, eh, gross. Like no, she was roasting these people, and her mean nicknames for them were like sticky. <laughs> um, <laughs> like dang, girl. So all of these men left. No suitor was found. The king was mortified by his daughter's behavior that he was like, oh, my gosh, she was so cruel to everybody and belittled everybody who came in. The first beggar who comes in and says that he wants my daughter, I'm giving her to that guy (laughs) because like she doesn't deserve like these fine men who came in and tried to win her hand. She was that rude to them. And she was like, whatever daddy. And like left. So a couple days later, a traveling fiddler came and was outside the window of the King, just like fiddling and playing. And the King was like, Oh, your music is really good. Why don't you come inside and perform? So this fiddler came in and, you know, he was, He was slightly better than like a beggar. Like he, you know, obviously lived like a rough life, lived off of, you know, the meager amounts that he got from like the music that he was playing. And so he played his fiddle for the king and the court. And they were all like, man, that was beautiful. That was lovely. And he was like, thank you. Is there any way that I could get any, you know, like a a trifling gift is... (laughs) <laughs> what he said which a i was trifling like, I like gift is what he asked for <laughs> a trifling woman is what he got <laughs> um <laughs> uh. and the king being true to his word from his daughter that like the first beggar who came by the house he was going to give her away 
He was like, oh, yeah, no, I've got something for you. You can marry my daughter, (laughs) which, okay, I think that that's like a super rude thing to do to the fiddler who like would think to himself, oh, now that I'm married to somebody royal, maybe my life's going to improve. No, (laughs) (laughs) the king was like, no, she can go stay at your place. (laughs) Um, And so like the king like immediately got, uh, you know, a, a priest so that they could perform a marriage. And the daughter was super upset, angry about it the whole time, like super mad. But she had to leave with her husband because her dad straight up kicked her out of the house <laughs> and was like, no, nope, go live with him now. So they start walking and like they're walking and walking and walking until they leave their kingdom and enter into like a new area that this princess had never seen before. And so she asks, to whom does this beautiful forest belong to? And the fiddler was like, oh, this belongs to King Thrushbeard. If you had taken him, him, it would have been yours. And she was like, oh, unhappy girl that I am, if I had but taken King Thrushbeard. It's like, yeah, too late now. So then they pass by this like gorgeous meadow and she's like, oh, and to whom does this beautiful meadow belong to? And he's like, oh, this belongs to King Thrushbeard. If you'd married him, it would have been yours. And she was like, oh, woe is me. I should have married this man. And then they come to this giant like town, beautiful town, doing really well, prosperous town. And she's like, and who owns this town? And the beggar is like, King Thrushbeard, pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) he's like king thrushbeard if you had married him this would have been yours and she's like oh poor girl that i am if i had only married this man and the fiddler was like hey as your husband i would really appreciate it if you stop (laughs) which i think is a little bold considering that he was the one who kept saying if you had married him this would have been yours and then she's like oh i wish i had and he's like i wish you wouldn't say that that (laughs) you're (laughs) saying it it i'm just agreeing with you (laughs) and so pretty soon they come up to this like small house that's kind of falling apart and so short like it's so small that they had to stoop through the door to get in so this like hovel of a home and she was like like to whom does this house belong to and he's like this is my house and now it's yours too (laughs) and she's like oh pity me it's like no one pities you oh my gosh No one at all. When they went into the house, the daughter was like, but where do your servants live? And he was like, that's adorable. Um, We don't have servants. (laughs) The servants are you. And if we're ever going to have any food to eat, then you have to learn a skill. And she's like, but I don't know how to do anything. It's like, yeah, and you should have thought about that before you're mouthing off to so many people. (laughs) Anyway, so he's like, well, let me get you the materials that you need to, like, weave baskets. Maybe you can weave baskets and sell baskets. So he gets her the materials that she needs to, like, weave baskets. And everything that she is making is garbage and falling apart. And the tough materials of the willow were ripping up her really tender hands. And she's like, oh, it hurts too much to like do it. I can't do it. And he's like, okay, I understand. Maybe you can try spinning so that, you know, you can sell the linen fibers. So he gets her some flax and everything she needs to start spinning the flax. No. And Flax, again, very rough on her hands. And 
starts ripping them up her thing like her just slices her fingers up and she's like oh i can't make these and you know everything that she was spinning was getting ruined because you know her she was bleeding all over (laughs) because she hadn't toughened up you know she didn't have any like calluses from any hard work like in her life and so her husband was like okay here's what i'm gonna do i am going to basically like buy pots and earthenware on wholesale and then she was going to sell them like in the Uh market. So she went to the market and this phrase like upsets me because it's like so true. Uh, It said for the first time she succeeded for the people were glad to buy the woman's wares because she was good looking. Uh That's just like is a fact that is still like true today that pretty people are like they're automatically seen as more successful and People want to do nice things for them. And like, that's just psychology, which is like upsetting. So she was able to um, sell this stuff at the market. And so for a while that was going fine. But then one day she went to set up like a spot for herself to sell this stuff in town. And she parked her stuff and unloaded it right at the corner of this market. And this drunk guy on a horse runs past like gallops past and steps on all the earth like cracks breaks everything everything falls over and is broken so an absolute loss and this guy just like takes off just keeps going and she's like oh my gosh what will i tell my husband because like this was all we had like left and so she went home to her husband and told him what had happened to the earthenware and he was like well the only thing that i can think for us to do now is you, I will see if we can get you a position in the king's court. So her husband says, you know what? I'm going to go and see if there's like a job that's available at the palace for you. Maybe you can work in the kitchen. So she gets a job as a lowly kitchen maid. And all she is fit to do is just like the dirtiest work of just like, scrubbing the floors scrubbing the pans like she doesn't know how to cook so she's not in charge of like cooking. (laughs) all she can do is like a lot of the gross taking out the scraps and the slop and stuff and that is how she gets the food that she's bringing home to her husband because she's getting a little bit of money but then also if she stores a they said like a little jar during the day, some of the cleanest, best scraps she was putting like in her little jar. So that then they could take the jar and basically make like a soup or something like out of the kitchen mm. scraps that she was like collecting in this little jar, like in her pocket. So it says that it happened that the wedding of the king's eldest son was about to be uh, celebrated, which this is a little confusing in the story because the land is supposed to belong to King Thrushbeard, but King yeah. Thrushbeard's dad is still alive and is the king. We've got a similar two king situation as to the other story, which yeah. I feel like this is the first time in my life that I've ever encountered that. I feel like I have seen in real life things as well where they have like the queen and the queen mother where it's like yes, the king is the king and his wife is the queen, but like the king's mom is still alive. So she's like the queen mother, but it's like she doesn't have any authority or whatever. Yeah. But I've never seen like a king king situation and two stories in one day. Hmm. Yeah. Wild. Maybe that's the lesson that you're trying to teach me is that, hey, there can be two kings at the same time, an old king and a young king. Yeah, it's okay. You can just call at least in. You can call everybody king. 
And I do. <laughs> all, my, all my boys. How you doing today, King? So it turned out that the wedding of the king's eldest son was about to be celebrated. And this ex-princess, she wanted to, like, see it, but she didn't want to, like, be seen. Uh, because she was, like, embarrassed. Also, they are neighboring kingdoms, so a lot of the court that she knew were going to be there. there. Yeah. And so she did not want to be seen, but she wanted to kind of, like, see what was going on. And, you know, she was just watching all these, like, beautiful people in their beautiful gowns, remembering what it was like, you know, to be one of them. They're all coming in. And it was, she just was feeling so sad that, you know, that her fate had led her to the sad heart. And she had been cursed with pride, and now she'd been humbled in her poverty. Those are the things that she was thinking of. And she was also smelling all of the delicious food that was being, like, taken in and out for this that she, like, couldn't have. And so she was trying to collect some of, like, you know, the morsels uh, of, like, leftover stuff because... It was all that she was going to be able to, you know, have from this, like, big, like, celebration. And so as she's, like, working, suddenly the king's son came in and he's, you know, all decked out, looking gorgeous and amazing. This is gold chains around his neck, which <laughs> I obviously thought was funny because I immediately... <laughs> I had a different image of gold chains, like, in my mind than is probably, like... Uh, yeah, like period time period appropriate for this story, <laughs> but it's fine. So when the king's son came in, he like reached out for her, was like, and so he reached out for her and was like, "Will you come dance with me?" And she was like, "Oh no no no," because <laughs> she's dressed like a servant because like oh. that's what she was and in front of this like big party she didn't want people to, like notice her or recognize her also she has like a jar of food scraps <laughs> it's, it's either like in her pocket or like attached to like her belt uh -huh. so she's like oh no 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 like i don't want to i don't want to and that's when she saw that it was king thrushbeard this guy that she had, like, made fun of so bad, roasted him so hard that I want people to remember his actual name is not Thrushbeard. We and never know his actual yeah, name. So bad that we do not know his actual name to yeah. this day. Never once in the story. That's how hard she roasted him, that it, like, changed time forwards and backwards so that <laughs> that is the only name that he is ever known by. And maybe that's also why she did not realize that this was, like, his wedding celebration. Because mm. they probably on the invitations were saying his actual name and <laughs> like, she I've had forgotten his actual name um, because she called him Thrushbeard. So she realizes like who it is and she like is even more like trying not to get pulled onto the dance floor by this guy. And as she's like struggling to not get on the dance floor with this guy, the pots of food that she had in her pockets fell out onto the floor and it said the soup ran out and the scraps were scattered all about. And uh. everybody stopped and turned and looked and started like laughing hysterically at her, they thought it was hilarious. And she, of course, was, it says she was so ashamed that she would rather have been a thousand fathoms below the ground. 
And oh, it's like, wow. yeah, I would imagine. So she went to like run to the like to the door to run down the steps, and King Thrushbeard like grabbed her and brought her back. And it said he said to her kindly, which I'm like, I have so many feelings. It says <laughs> the word he said this kindly to her. I I there's I feel like there's not a whole lot of good people in this story. I'm just about to say. I was and, just thinking that too. Mm-hmm. So he said, do not be afraid. I am the fiddler who had been living with you in that pigsty for love for you. I had disguised myself so that he could marry her. And then he admits that he was the drunk guy on the horse (gasps) that had broken all the pottery when her business had been going well. Uh He (laughs) ran a horse over that stuff so it would be destroyed. So that then he would humble her in her proud spirit, punish her for her insolence oh for mocking gosh. him, and have her work in his kitchen to set up this whole scenario, right? <laughs> and so, then surprise invite her to her own wedding? Her own wedding celebration where she's that dressed sh- in garbage with yeah. pots of scraps in her pants to like yeah. embarrass her <laughs> in front of all these people. That's pretty messed up, dude. Yeah. So it's like, then she wept bitterly and said, I have done great wrong and am not worthy to be your wife. And I'm like, okay. mm, No. (laughs) It's like, it's like, yes, but not for the, not because of this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And he's like, I want you to be comforted because the bad days are now past and we will celebrate our <laughs> wedding. And then ladies in waiting came and put her into beautiful clothes and her father and the whole court came over to her and wished her happiness in her marriage with King Thrushbeard. And the joy now became so earnest that I wish you and I had been there too. That's how the story oh, yeah. ends. Ernest, I'm like, <laughs> earnest joy, I'm oh sure. So earnest. Dang. Um, again, you're, I want to saying- remind people it was right next to uh in in like the lineup of tale types. It's right right in line with the taming, taming of, the of the shrew because there's a whole section of stories about like basically punishing women into obedience. <laughs> and like yeah. good behavior. Um so listen. This is a story where I am like, I see what it's trying to do. And like, and especially if you are teaching children, you want to, you know, teach them how to be nice to other people. Yeah. This story ain't it. Like, it's like, hey, <laughs> this is how we teach you be really mean to people to teach them to be nice to you. That's like the message that it's. Yeah. yeah. If which I'm like, dude, I like I understand that she is guilty of bad was behavior. In the wrong. Yes. What he did is way worse. Yeah. <laughs> because here's the thing. Okay. Was it rude to insult everybody that came before them? Yes, it was. Yeah. But like she was at least honest. She was saying her honest, terrible feelings. She yeah. needed to learn how to be tactful. She could have still refused to marry any of these people, just been like, nope, not for me. It's okay. Yeah. You know, it's like, and that, like, is it horrible? Does it suck? Yes. But is it the worst thing ever that someone is like rude to people? No. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, worst case scenario, she never gets married because she doesn't think anyone is good enough for her. 
and other people start to realize she's not a nice person. No one really wants to be around her. So they're not around her. And either eventually she realizes like, oh, the way that I am drives people away. I need to improve myself. Yeah. Um, or she dies alone and friendless. Yeah. A bitter, like, a bitter old person. Exactly. Um, she, but, yeah. But it's not okay. What he had done, which is trick her into thinking that he was someone else or tricking her father, I guess, and thinking he was some, he was someone else in order to get her to against her will be married to him. And then like sabotage her. Yeah. And purposefully, you know, humiliate her and set her up to do things that she knows she would be miserable doing. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. one of the biggest parts is like the whole deception of it. It's like, yes. we're teaching if we're trying to teach someone that they need to be tactful, the, we don't want to teach them about like, if you construct an elaborate set of lies, <laughs> then you can make things like go your way. It's like you're sacrificing teaching something, some someone something good by teaching them something like way worse. Like the problem that you're teaching yes. them to start to do is way worse than the problem you're trying to solve with the story. Yes. And it's so it it's like, okay. Going back to our our kind of premise of like, are these stories for children? And I'm saying like some of these stories are suitable for children and can teach valuable lessons. But also there are books that exist that and stories that you can think of and come up with that would teach about like, oh, this person is really, really mean to everybody. They bully everybody and they they make fun of the way people look. Do we want to do that? No, we don't. Let's see if this girl like is happy. And it's like, oh no, she's not happy because now nobody wants to play with her. Oh, oh, and then somebody teaches her like how to be kind by being kind to her. Or, you know, there are stories, there are books that exist like that. There are stories that exist like that that teach that to children. And so, like a story like this doesn't need to be, you know, read to your child if you're reading it to them to teach them a little lesson of, hey, we need to be kind to other people and not make fun of the way people look or speak or the the wealth of them or, you know, like it. Yeah, this story, exactly. I think what you had said of like, there's a thing that it's trying to teach that's a good thing to teach, but then it teaches a worse thing. <laughs> it, it like glorifies a worse thing or makes the worst thing seem like it's the way to fix the problem. Yeah, like it's, yeah, exactly. It makes it seem like it's the way to fix the problem or that it's justified or that it's okay because of it's correcting what someone else had wrong or, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, Because yeah. if you're talking to your child and you're like, oh, is there somebody in your class that is not nice to other people or that they're rude or whatever? Well, then if you construct a way to embarrass them very, very badly in front of their <laughs> peers, maybe they'll become a better person. And it's like, no, no, that's a villain origin story. Is what that is. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I thought like, to me, it was such a good example of like the cultural behavior that we want to teach to people today and to children, especially like that we want to teach to children is different than it was. And so when you take books that are written by a certain culture for a certain culture that were written for the purpose of teaching those cultural behaviors 
But if we use it today as a story, we have to ask ourselves, does this teach the norms and behaviors of what I want for my child? Or is there maybe a better story to to teach those values? And it's okay to say like, oh yeah, when this story was written, I'm sure it was a very popular story. (laughs) But I'm going to go a different route with how I'm going to teach my children our cultural behaviors. And again, just putting this back in the context of what we're talking about this episode is that idea of like specifically for reading to and teaching to children. Because outside of that context, both of these stories I thought were great and very entertaining to read as an adult or hear as an adult. And also, even if their message and intended message some of the time is contrary to what we value today, doesn't mean that it's not valuable to us. Like, yeah, the message probably isn't as valuable, but there are things that we can learn, especially when we're looking at the way that we do, where it's like we're learning things about a culture. We're learning something about the way that they thought about being rude to people, the way they thought about marriage, the way they thought about the relationships between men and women and the power dynamics and things going on there. It's like almost especially because the values are different, we can learn something about that culture. And then you can also extrapolate things to your own life and things helps you reaffirm values that you have or don't have and see how you might be more similar to or see how you're more similar to these people than you might think that you are and realize that that's not how you want to be. And then, you know, correct your own behavior or whatever. I feel like there's a lot of things to get out of that, which I know was made very clear that we're not like saying that these are bad stories or whatever, but it's just like, there's lots of different ways that you can look at them and come at them. And there's lots of different ways to get value out of them, whether it be for children, for yourself or whatever. So the last part of this question that, you know, we read at the beginning of the episode, at the top of the episode, this last part that I want to talk about is which stories are the most important and which retellings are best? And the answer to that question is again, personal. Yeah. Where it, it 100% depends on like you and your family, like what folk tales have cultural significance to your child and your family? And that answer is obviously going to be different for everyone. Cinderella is not a more important story for your child to hear than Momotaro. Which of those stories they might encounter sooner in their life is going to be different depending on where you live in the world. And and also the answer to that question of like, which one of those is important for my child? Again, depends on what part of the world that you live in. because. A child in, you know, Europe, Cinderella pops up in a lot of cultural references and in a lot of different places, probably more so than Momotaro would. But if you are living in Japan, your child would get more cultural significance from Momotaro than from Cinderella. And so to ask, like, which stories are the most important for my children? It's like, what? what stories are the most significant for you? What stories do you want them to know? And also, if 
If you're a parent who is from a country, but you don't live in that country anymore, it's deeply important to ask yourself, what stories do I want my children to know from the country that I came from that they are culturally also tied to? Because, yeah, if you are a parent who grew up in India and now you're living in Australia, you know what? Your kids are probably going to get exposed to Western fairy tales and folk tales at school, in the media. But if you want them to have those stories from India that you grew up with, you can give those to them. And those stories then become more important for them to hear than the stories that they might be hearing in Australia. And so when it comes to the question of like, are folk tales and fairy tales for children? There is not a quick, easy answer. And the matter of which story is more important than another story is a deeply personal question for all of us. So for 2022, we are super excited to be focusing on answering your questions. (laughs) And retelling stories that people have suggestions for. So yeah, if you want to go to the Facebook group or the Instagram page and message me, I would love to hear people's suggestions and your questions and any other general commentary (laughs) from everybody. But we're super excited for 2022 and this new project. Woohoo! Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Man, no, skip what I just said. Garbage. I'm going to just read from my notes.